I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. G'day guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Richard Gibson, the Head of Life Sciences from the Auckland Zoo. Welcome Richard. Thank you very much, nice to be here. Now mate, we've been at the large Varanid workshop here in Alice Springs, and um, you've done a couple of wonderful talks about keeping large monitors, particularly Komodo dragons, in captivity successfully, and some of the things that can go wrong, and I think a lot of people were pretty amazed by the fact that there are so many things to be wary of with such an animal. Yeah, I think so. I was very fortunate to have spent a considerable amount of my career working with Komodo dragons. Back in the uh, early 2000s, I was curator at Zoological Society of London and was was the the lead on designing and building a Komodo facility, so an enclosure and a display dedicated Komodo dragons. And through that, I was also able to do some some really exciting work uh, in the field with Komodo dragons with a guy called Claudio Trophy and also a guy called Tim Jessup, who I know you've also spoken to. And uh, getting out in the field and uh, and seeing animals in their unadulterated natural wild form obviously has a massive impact on how you perceive an animal in the artificial environments we create in zoos and, and elsewhere. And so uh, through the years of working with dragons at a number of zoos and seeing them in the wild, um, some great successes in, in, in the zoo world across the zoos I've worked with, but also some really sad and, and, and disheartening disappointments and failures. Yeah, I've come to, to think a, a little bit about how we keep our, our reptiles in a captive environment. And dragons are, for me, they are our banner species. They're our, they're our gorilla. Uh, or our elephant, if you like. They are our big, iconic, mega-vertebrate reptile that we can really hang a, a, a bit of a renewed uh, approach and a commitment to, to reptile husbandry, to keep them really, not to keep them well, but to keep them really well, and to have them, and you hear this phrase probably quite a lot over the years, but it's not good enough for animals to survive in our care, right? They've got to really thrive, and in order to thrive, we've got to go to the next level, and I think often we don't understand what that next level really requires. And so for something like a Komodo dragon, which, yes, it's the largest lizard in the world, principles apply, though, also to the smallest lizards, but we've got to provide them with an environment that truly... People used to use the word facsimile. We're creating a facsimile of a wild environment in captivity. I think we've got to do better than a facsimile. We've got to really create a copy... Uh, a copy in many ways and at least from the, in terms of the abiotic environment the climate we've got to really mimic that climate well enough that the animal's behavior and its physiology and therefore its well-being are not compromised and i think it's all too easy to provide an environment that is a facsimile it has it has elements of what we see in the wild and we see elements of natural behavior and we think everything's fine but it's in between those elements that things are going wrong. And so with something like Komodo dragons, you can't rely on a basking spot. It doesn't matter how hot the basking spot is. If the basking spot's the right temperature because it's the same temperature the animal basks at in the wild, that all seems great, right? And we all know that reptiles bask and they heat up and then they go off and do their thing. Well, you've also got to have the right ambient temperature so they don't cool down too quickly and have to, force to be, be forced to go and bask again too soon. And therefore, you've got to be providing that broader abiotic environment to make sure that their entire behavioural repertoire is is preserved not just elements of it and so so for komodo dragons that really is about high temperatures throughout the day so they can be active and walking as we heard from tim in one of the presentations they can be walking at least a kilometer perhaps 10 kilometers per day and for an animal to be able to do that it's got to be able to maintain its body temperature without having to keep stopping and basking 
and therefore you need that ambient temperature. And of course, the knock-on effect of that is the exercise that these animals get and the fitness, therefore, as a result of that exercise and their low weight, their low body mass and their energy and their strength. And to create all of that in, a, in an artificial environment is challenging. But if we can't be challenged, not going to raise, that, raise ourselves to that challenge, then we just shouldn't do it. So you, you are a firm believer in, in completely enriching the animal in captivity and exercising, correct diet. You, you've got everything covered in what you do. Yes, but the one word I'd take issue with there is enriching because I don't think we are enriching their environment. We're providing actually a completely mundane, boring, normal, natural environment. It's not enriched. It's <laughs> if we need to enrich the environment, it's because we've created an environment that was depauperate in some way in the first place, right? So if we put an animal in an enclosure and it's not got the right adequate abiotic and physical environment then of course we need to enrich it and when we get it to the right level we're not enriching it really we're just creating a proper environment and uh, a proper environment for, for, for a reptile is not just about the physical as I said it's about the abiotic like all those climatic elements of light and photoperiod and thermoregulatory ability so then the humidity and everything because as we many of us will, will talk about as reptile people is that ectotherms are so intimately tied to that abiotic environment everything they do depends on the climate around them. And talking about like the, the ambient temperature is inducive to them exercising more. We saw a lot of pictures of animals that were overweight in captivity mm-hmm. when we looked at their wild counterparts. Particularly what sticks with me was the crocodile monitors. All the crocodile monitors in captivity, they look, if you didn't know any better, they, they look okay. Yeah. But then you see a wild crocodile monitor being a long, thin, arboreal animal and suddenly you go, hang on a minute. They're actually more shaped like a Varanus prasina. Yep. like the, the tree monitors yep. than, than anything yeah and we're sitting here not- in the you know in the center of australia in the red desert and one of the most local iconic species is the extraordinary parenti that many of us have been looking for for the last few days and miserably failing to see but uh, and what an extraordinary animal that is but again you see the average animal held in a, in a in a captive environment and it looks fit and it looks healthy and bright and it's a nice color but they're almost always 10 20 30 40 percent heavier than they would be and uh, they are yeah, well, we heard someone refer to it, but I'm sure if, you've, if you are a, a reptile lover and you've kept animals in captivity in the past or presently and you've also been out in the wild and observed and sometimes even handled wild animals, the difference between a, a captive and wild animal are somewhat chalk and cheese in terms of their strength and their, their fight and their vigour. And, uh, and, and exactly the same with these, these parentes, you know, they're, they're big and they're heavy and they're relatively sloth-like in their behaviour and they're not walking for kilometres every day because they don't need to. And I think all those consequences, they, we see obesity, overweight, we see inactivity, but what we don't know is what's going on inside that animal in terms of its physiological mechanisms and the consequences of those changes to its metabolism, let's say, and its physiology and its long-term, therefore, health and well-being. Ultimately, we see probably that reflected in their longevity. Yeah, the print is, is, a, is a good point for that as well. Yeah, for sure. We've seen some good pictures over this conference, over this workshop. Yeah, for definite. So um, with, the, with the Komodos, like, how do you give them that amount of exercise that they would get in the wild? I don't know for mm. sure, but um, so having kept dragons for many years a long time ago, I always told, told myself that when I, if and when I'm ever in charge of Komodo dragons in a captive environment again, I would do some, some different and new things. Some of the things that I would do and I see happening in other institutions now, I, I think are great. So um, there's much more 
conditioning and training than used to happen with reptiles. Uh, if you go back 20 years and you talk to the average reptile keeper in a zoo about training their reptiles, they'd have laughed you out of the building, right? Um, but, uh, but these days, uh, we're a lot more enlightened about the intelligence and learning capabilities of reptiles. Uh, and monitor lizards are arguably up there with the brightest of our reptiles in terms of speed, at least, of which they pick things up. I don't really think they're that, that much different from many other reptiles. I think it's just that we, can, we, we relate to them slightly more easily because of their predatory nature their behaviors are easy to interpret uh, and when we see a monitor lizard taking an interest in something it turns its head and it gives you that death stare that everyone talks about yeah. and we can see that and we recognize that it's paying attention whereas a shingleback skink's probably just as alert probably paying just as much attention but it sits there with a sort of slightly beguiling grin on its face all the time you can't really tell <laughs> what's going on so much so but so yeah so training dragons is definitely a good thing uh, we've obviously got to be aware of health and safety at all times because although they are incredibly tractable animals and easy to have a, a wonderful working relationship with they are still wild animals but that training ability really allows us to manipulate their activity and their behavior and uh, and get them busy and active and running around and moving around and climbing and everything else and that's all got to be awesome um, there are one or two institutions I'm aware of who have actually conditioned their animals to accept uh, a shoulder harness and they actually take their animals out for walks on on days with conducive weather and again that's awesome uh, may, maybe you just tie it to the back of your truck and go for a drive I don't know to get that extra few kilometers up but yeah taking a dragon for a walk not not everyone's cup of tea there are ethical considerations it doesn't suit everybody there are potential negative connotations around seeing wild animals on leashes it's all how you present it and interpret it and explain what you're doing but from the animal's point of view I'm absolutely adamant it must be exceptionally good for them uh, and the one thing I've always wanted to do and it came up actually during the conference I'd actually been discussing it with one of the um, uh, with one of the presenters who had been talking about her overweight parenti monitor lizards uh, and I talked to her about this idea I'd had uh, many 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 years ago and then Dr. Tim uh, actually sort of jokingly made reference to it in his talk about well I don't know he said should we give them should we give them treadmills and I thought yes absolutely we should be giving them treadmills. <laughs> Everyone right. laughed at that point and you could hear them laugh That's and then right. all of a sudden go from a laugh to a Oh, actually, so yeah. <laughs> and and, and it's, I think it's an easy thing to do, and, and we know that fortunately there have been enough studies using monitor lizards of various species for things like water metabolism and respiration rates and metabolic rates and all those sort of things. These physiological studies in labs that have put monitor lizards on treadmills and hooked them up to monitors and face masks and stuff to understand all this sort of high-tech um, physiological stuff. That we know that if you put a monitor lizard, or at least the ones they've studied, if you put them on a treadmill, they will respond to it. They will walk on it. Uh, there are species that you need a visual cue going past their head to convince them they're actually moving within, you know, within an environment. But for monitor lizards, that you seem to you stick them on a treadmill and they all just walk. So the, we know it can be done. Obviously, a Komodo dragon is bigger, but it's just a big treadmill. It's just a it's just a travelator that we all stand on at the uh, at the airport when we're going from terminal to terminal, right? So if we imagine that uh, Komodo dragon enclosure A is terminal one, and Komodo uh, dragon enclosure B is the, is the domestic terminal, and we need a transfer, well. We put a tunnel in between the two, which is commonplace for dragons. But instead of a flat floor, we put a travelator in. So instead of taking 10 seconds to get from A to B, maybe it takes 10 minutes or an hour. Who, who knows? And I think that's a really cool and exciting and high-tech and, and forward-thinking way to think about exercising dragons. And uh, that's what I really want to be. I'd love to see someone put an, a travelator, put a treadmill, whatever you want to call it, in, into, a, into a monitor lizard enclosure and, and demonstrate its worth. That's what I'm excited about. Well, I think that, that would really work. It sounds like, when you first say it, it sounds ridiculous, funny, like you're joking, 
but it really isn't. It's actually a great idea and I not never, a joke at all. I never joke I about never joke. dragons. No. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So what are, what are some of the big problems with what we've had with Komodo dragons in captivity? Well, so the key, the key things in general, as I say, as I mentioned, are inactivity leading to obesity and uh, oh, so inactivity, uh, yeah, obesity, overweight, and then... Uh, with adult male dragons in particular, we see them getting so heavy. And this is a hypothesis I should emphasize. There's no, there's no empirical proof of this, but it's a, it's a common sense hypothesis, if you like. The heavier they get and the, the weaker, if you like, the less fit they are. They are, they are a vicious circle, if you like. The heavier I get, the less fit I get. And I'm talking about me now as well. And, um, and uh, their posture changes. We see the, a drop in their, their body posture, the shoulders being lower to the ground than they really ought to be, and that changes the angle of the front legs, and that affects how they're able to ambulate. Their ability to walk is affected, and then we see things like what gets referred to as knuckling, where they end up not being able to flip their front feet over when they're walking, and they end up on the backs of their feet, and then they get wrist problems, which leads to arthritis, which makes the mobi- mobility problems worse. And you get into this vicious cycle of basically being a fat, lazy, lizard leads to health problems and we all it's an, it's an old story right being fat and lazy is not good for your health and it's the same for dragons um the other the other key thing that we have as a challenge for maintaining dragon populations uh, across the the zoos of the world is that um, female dragons reach sexual maturity six seven years of age and uh, in the wild recently sexually mature and, and receptive fertile female dragons of course would be mated in as soon as they were ready as soon as they, they were mature um, but what happens often in captivity is because of the the ability and the sp- to hold multiple dragons or space restrictions or lots of zoos end up holding single or, or multiple females but without a male present and then um, we end up with reproductive disorders um, and those reproductive disorders, disorders can sometimes result in the, the premature death of Komodo dragons and we've seen a lot of youngish female Komodo dragons dying which really shouldn't have done because almost certainly because they either haven't at least been in proximity to a male and being in proximity to a male might be enough it might help them, you know, the scent of a male in close proximity might be a cue to ovulate and once they've ovulated they're more likely to pass those eggs and, 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 and get rid of them but, um, but I firmly believe the best thing to do is actually get them mated to actually give them access to a male and get them mating so their reproductive uh, cycles can, can, can be completed and the whole process goes through on an annual basis as it should do and if we don't want to hatch those eggs that's fine we can put them in the fridge and then freeze them and humanely euthanise those fertile eggs but it's much better to give those females that healthy natural process and that's the same Komodo dragons are again they're an extreme example of a health issue as a result of it but anyone who's worked with reptiles in a captive environment for any years knows that it's not just dragons that we see this in we see reproductive disorders in lots of reptiles that are prevented from breeding um, whether it be boas or pythons or blue tongue skinks or anything really I mean we see it in all sorts of animals and uh, so I'm a massive advocate that we should always we should always not breed things by design rather than by accident or poor planning better to breed something and destroy the eggs uh, and controversially and not everyone is, uh, would, would agree with me here but I would actually even for live bearing species I would still rather breed the animals and euthanize those newborn babies uh, at, at, at a very young age either birth or at their dispersal age if there's any parental care um, in a humane ma- fashion because it promotes the best welfare behaviorally and physiologically for their parents and that's our priority goal in any of this is to provide uh, for, if we've got an animal in captivity our responsibility is to provide absolute best possible welfare and let's say it's not just behavioral it's physiological 
and therefore if you have a blue tongue skink male and a blue tongue skink female and you don't want babies and you keep them apart who knows how long it is before your female ends up with a reproductive disorder if you put them together and uh, they have babies and you've suddenly got 11 baby blue tongue skinks that nobody wants and you can't get rid of not a lot of people are keen to deal with that but if we're going to be professional animal managers we need to step up the game a little bit and think about what are the actual real important elements of what we're doing who's welfare is priority is it the parents or is it the babies and remember that euthanasia of an animal of course is not a welfare issue uh, depending on how you do it if you do it very badly it becomes a welfare issue but humane euthanasia of any animal is not a welfare issue it's an ethical issue and if you're comfortable with the ethics of it then that's great if you're not comfortable then you either you don't do it or you, you think about it and keep returning to it but thinking about responsible management of populations of animals in captivities requires management through euthanasia many times and uh, i think that it's we we are as a as a humans are naturally hypocritical we we apply different standards to different things in our lives and what the standards we apply to wild animals pests that we're trying to eradicate from new zealand for example the standards we apply to the animals that we all like to make into beef burgers and eat yeah the the standards we apply to our, our to bobby our favorite dog that we've had for 17 years and is already decrepit and really should have been put down years ago and the the standards we apply to zoo animals they're all different they shouldn't of course be different because they should all have the same thing at heart but we apply different standards and different approaches in all these different contexts and that is all the complex morass of 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 ethics and of course there's no right and wrong answer we all have our own personal ethics and place on that continuum so it's it's a complicated thing I'm going a bit off on a wow. tangent now. Wow, uh, no, that was great. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Yeah, very well said. <laughs> With the Komodos, I'm going to say to you, metatastic calcification. What the hell do I mean? Right. <laughs> 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 um, so You're the expert in this. I'm, I'm flattered, but I'm not. Um, I, my level, my expertise, my my contribution to expertise in that in that was uh, is that uh, I had the first. I was responsible for the first dragon that uh, dropped dead suddenly without any uh, warning, and on post mortem we were able to diagnose this condition. So um, and what so metastatic calcification is or metast- metastatic mineralization is is this uh, deposition of calcium mineral, mineral calcium in soft tissues where it shouldn't be. Uh, and uh, and when it gets deposited in these soft tissues it causes obviously local structural damage but it changes the very nature of the tissue and the tissue becomes less flexible less malleable loses lots of processes probably it's not my expertise but i can imagine it loses a lot of its normal physiological process because it's changing the physical structure but from the perspective of what we learn with komodo dragons is the key thing that changes it becomes much more fragile or friable much more prone to 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 splitting breaking Uh, and uh, what we found with a number of dragons uh, is that for reasons we don't yet fully understand but almost certainly related to their environment uh, specifically their environment or their lighting their 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 photo environment if you like uh, and probably related to diet as well but possibly more generically fitness and everything else we really don't know but what we were finding with a bunch of komodo dragon females is that they were depositing excess calcium from their bloodstream so we have processes we all have process called homeostasis which manages levels of all sorts of things in our bodies including calcium in our bloodstream and they were for whatever reason having excess calcium in their bloodstream that was then being deposited in the nearest possible soft tissues which of course the nearest tissues to blood are your blood vessel walls 
And as those blood vessel walls became increasingly calcified, uh, it didn't take much to cause them to rupture. And that that might be a, 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 tra a traumatic incident, like a, a, a scuffle with another dragon or a, a fall off a, a branch or something like that. Or it might be that process of, of reproductive process of when a female is cycling and her ovaries are swelling up and she's producing eggs and there's an increased blood flow to those ovaries to support that and that increased blood flow puts pressure on those blood vessels and then bang split and uh, you get massive hemorrhaging into the abdomen and resulting sometimes in you know obviously a huge drop in blood pressure and potentially shock and potentially death and uh, we've seen that in a in quite a significant number of female dragons throughout uh the European and American Zoological Association regions. Uh, and it may be more common than we know, but obviously it relies on thorough post-mortems. Um, but once that condition was, we were made aware or became aware of that condition, and this goes right back to 2004 or something like that, four or five, um, obviously vets and pathologists working in zoological institutions, now they're aware of it, they're able to take a bit more uh, detailed look at uh, 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 during postmortems and diagnose these things and as I say we've seen it in I think I can't remember the figures now although I presented them the other day um, something like 30, 20 or 30 percent or something of the young female dragons have, have died and had thorough postmortems have shown signs of that this condition to some extent or another so so it's a concern and it's a concern really that we really don't quite know why and, uh, and although I would normally be a proponent of, of curing the disease rather than the symptoms, we don't really know what the disease is. We can make some hypotheses, um, but in the, in the absence of a, of a clear understanding of why it's happening, we need to go back to uh, really where we started this conversation is that there's almost something we're, almost certainly something we're doing wrong um, because it can't be a natural phenomenon because it certainly wouldn't be adaptive uh, and therefore we must be doing something wrong and we need to go back and look at what we're doing with these dragons and what we're providing for them and they're getting that, going back to all those things I talked about the abiotic environment, the, the diet, the nutrition and also the access to males for female dragons at the right time of years, at the right time of age rather and at the right time of year to come back to making everything as close as it as it can be to what would happen in the wild so we've obviously because you you knew all about that like 10 12 years ago when i was coming to london zoo as well um that was sort of all, all out there and it doesn't seem to have moved forward medically too far since then but do you think that husbandry has changed a lot since then and we've got less of those females dying because i think in back in the day of all the dragons that died, 90% were females. Um, certainly, there's been a big skew towards females, um, and you know, so you're 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 pushing me out of my comfort zone now. In, in as much as that, I haven't worked with dragons since mm. I left the UK in 2011. So I haven't I haven't I haven't worked with dragons, been responsible for dragons in eight years now. But uh, and, and so I'm not really uh, up to speed and familiar with how things have happened how things have progressed if indeed they have progressed at all um, certainly husbandry has improved in Europe and in America as a result of this uh, there's a much greater understanding of the, of, the, of the husbandry requirements so certainly we've seen a change in that so I was involved in creating some some, some changes to the, the, the perceived you know protocol standards for animal for Komodo dragon husbandry all those years ago and they've influenced certainly what people are doing uh, I'm also aware that we're that the zoo community at whole led by the European community but the zoo community at whole are in the process of, of generating a much 
much more uh, extensive and holistic Komodo Dragon Husbandry Protocol guideline at the moment with input from all people all over the world who have got great experience. So that will be coming to a zoo near you soon, I hope, in the next probably six to 12 months that'll be finished and that will no doubt take account of a lot of this stuff. I, I suspect that the problem with, so what very often we see conditions, diseases, problems in, in animals in, in captive environments, whether they be zoos or private hobbyists or farms or whatever, but it takes a lot of time and money to do a thorough research project and really understand what's going on. And unless that money is there and that project is prioritised and there's a champion that's really pushing that, often it just doesn't get done. And my optimistic, uh, my optimistic way of looking at this is that if no one is really continuing to look at metastatic calcification issues in Komodo dragons, that's probably, a, a, on the one hand, it's a bad thing because well, well, why, why not? But you could argue, on the other hand, it's maybe the need... The urgency, the priority to do it has reduced because we're not seeing so many problems now. Yeah. So you could flip it over and think of it as a positive. And so I know that, so the guy I worked with when we first diagnosed this is a guy called uh, Romain Pizzi, uh, an amazingly talented um, reptilian pathologist. He was working at London Zoo at the same time as I was there and he did all this amazing work. But then he subsequently moved on to a new role and new priorities. And without that champion, I suspect that, you know, the focus came off it. And at the same time, now it was public and it was well known and people started to make some changes probably that the probably and hopefully he says optimistically again that the the, the 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 condition is not as common as it was but i really am not up to date and up to speed but um, that's my optimistic hope well it sounds like from the workshop it sounds like there's definitely been footsteps forward in respects of husbandry yeah certainly certainly outside i mean i don't want to don't want to speak ill of my uh, antipodean colleagues but i think certainly with the european and american there's been a lot of advances australia i think is significantly behind the rest of the crowd with their komodo dragon husbandry uh, i think that's for t- one main reason is they've had very few dragons in this region of course and so they haven't had the same ability to go through that learning curve um, but the other reason is i think there is um the commitment to Komodo dragons, the the business and sort of philosophical commitment to them as a as a big deal, a, a big megavert. Uh, we've been through that phase in in Europe. They've had their status and their their their, their prominence elevated through years of attention and, and new buildings and, and and high profile marketing and and, and visitation campaigns, etc. So Komodo dragons are there. They've arrived in Europe and America big time. Whereas in Australia, they say they've been relatively low key because they've only been a handful, and therefore they haven't yet generated that that status uh, and as they and you need that status as chicken egg thing you know they need to generate that status in order to get the buy-in from the organizations keeping them to make enough commitment to them and I, what i anticipate over the next five to ten years is we'll see komodo dragons doing better and better and the better they do the better they'll do again because as they do better people invest in them more and as they invest in them more they do even better and you'll get that sort of slow cyclic growth of the more we understand the better we do the more people want to do komodo dragons that makes sense. It does Absolutely. make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to exercising the animals, yeah. would it be a crazy thought to put a Fitbit on a Komodo dragon? No, not at all. I think actually someone's put a Fitbit on, uh, I know people have put a Fitbit on reptiles and other animals in, in zoo collections, etc. But absolutely. And I think actually maybe someone's done the equivalent of a Fitbit on a wild Komodo dragon. But, but um, so yeah, it makes perfect sense. Of course, what the Fitbit does is it'll tell us what they're not doing. 
or what they are doing, but it won't make them do anything. So, but it's a great way to collect data on just how active slash inactive our dragons are uh, and give us a direct comparison because we've got data from the likes of Tim, his colleagues in Indonesia. We've got good data on just how active and mobile wild dragons are. So absolutely doing, doing similar data collection on captured dragons will give us a, I suspect, rather sobering comparison um, between uh, uh, the activity levels of a, of a captive versus wild dragon. Yeah. And all the various different styles of keeping lives. The, the laser laser training was interesting, yeah. being, running around chasing a laser. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to do that with my dog, and that is great. They yeah. they love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's target training effectively, um, but it's, you can, of course with a laser you can do it a bit more remotely. You don't need to be in the enclosure with the dragon. So from a health and safety perspective, it's it, there's a positive there. I wanted to ask you about that. There was a lot of from all the different zoos, a lot of different techniques from being in there, cuddling the animal, rubbing it on the face, giving it a needle while, while it was just there, to having them in a box that they sleep in that you can access different parts of the animal to do medical attention and being very hands-off. Mm. Do you have any comment about the different styles of um, being in with the animal? Or yeah, so um, um, myself and some colleagues were talking about that during the conference, actually, and we did have some side conversations about it because I've done both. Uh, I've got a foot in both camps. Um, it's when you're, a, when you're an animal lover, a reptile lover, uh, passionate about lizards, etc., and it's hard not to be taken in by Komodo dragons because they are for, for want of a better word awesome there's just something about Komodo dragons and once you work with Komodo dragons you kind of no other lizard quite compares you know I mean there's just something very special about them and and, and because of the, the the ability to form a let's call it a personal relationship with a Komodo dragon they re- certainly recognize individuals and they rarely show any sort of aggression towards people and you can have a close hands-on interactive relationship with them it's very tempting to do that because it's rewarding for, for us and it even appears to be rewarding for the lizards um, I've met many dragons that solicit close contact and they clearly enjoy having a scratch behind the ears or whatever it is right yes they do have ears they don't stick out but you can still scratch behind them sort of <laughs> um, but yeah they, uh, so they, there's clearly something in it for them as well and so I've done that and uh, but at the same time they are still wild animals and uh, as good as keeper as we think we might be and as good as that relationship is or we believe that relationship to be there is always room for error whether it's human error or whether it's just a, a freak incident in the environment that spooks the dragon or whatever it might be and uh, a spooked dragon is not something you want to be on the the, the wrong end of and therefore from a health and safety perspective I I, I I think we need to be very careful and uh, I'm, I think there are opportunities for and ways in which we can still provide that close contact but with some mitigating, um, some mitigating uh, procedures that just provide some level of security and protection for you. So for example if you are, and, and this, this applies to any reptile or probably any animal, but if you understand a little bit about the animal's behaviour and how it moves and how it's likely to to react to, to anything simply having a planted stick in the ground that you've got your body weight hold and you're leaning on a stick which is beside the dragon's head on the same side as you are while you're poking it if the dragon suddenly gets spooked and twitches its head towards you the first thing it will encounter is that stick and whilst he might be stronger than you that stick will be enough just to a give you warning or slow his twitch or wake him up or her up about oh what am i doing and it'll give you time to retreat versus not having that stick there the difference could be losing a finger 
So I think there are, we need to be a little bit savvy about not taking for granted this amazing relationship that people can have with dragons and recognising that uh, on a bad day, and they are very few and far between, but they have happened on a bad day, they have the dentition and the strength to create a very serious injury without any trouble whatsoever. And, um, you know, I've seen people with horrendous cuts and uh, horrendous bites to their fingers and stuff from hatchling Komodo dragons, which, uh, you know, about half a metre long and five, 400 grams or something when they're uh, first few months old or whatever. Whereas a, an adult male Komodo dragon, the power in those jaws, I don't know if anyone's ever seen a Komodo dragon tooth, but it looks basically like a tiger shark tooth. So it's long and it's curved and it's got a serrated back edge and uh, they 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 have the, the mouth of a shark really. And uh, it's not worth taking that risk by placing any part of your body in a, in a, in a situation where you are within a, an easy strike because it can happen. They are absolutely a dangerous animal. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, we—I've always managed. I've always thought of them largely like big cats, and I, I, I say that deliberately because there are plenty of organisations around the world that have big cats under direct what we call full contact where they don't have any protection between them and the cats and they go in and they cuddle and play and wrestle and swim with the cats etc and it goes very very well for years sometimes ever but there are also institutions where there have been accidents and it's the same with elephants and it's the same with dogs that you keep at home and it's the same with horses it's the same with any animal right ultimately we can have amazing relationships with them think we know them really well but there's always room for error there's always room for a freak accident and in a professional environment where we have the, 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 the health and well-being of our staff as a priority, uh, I think we can't be, we shouldn't be putting any of our staff or ourselves in a situation where there's not that additional level of protection just to, to, to mitigate against any of those situations. It's definitely a fair point with not like surprising your dragon. You showed us the video on one of your talks of yeah. the female that surprised a male dragon and yeah. he just ripped into her ripped yeah. her stomach open yeah and we heard about uh, we heard about a collection talk about when a, a, a male dragon was surprised by the sudden reappearance of a, another dragon next door and it bolted across the enclosure and hurt itself um, so these things happen and there have been dragons in a in America that have uh, run into the glass chasing a cat that walked past and you know who could have anticipated a cat walking past the window but it did dragon just bolted, ran straight into the glass and, uh, you know, damaged itself. I think that one actually may have even died. Um, and so those sorts of freak events happen. And if you're in between those, <laughs> yeah. those two, the stimuli and the, re- and the reaction, uh, you don't want to be. So I think we just need to be very, very conscious of that. I can remember one time at London Zoo um, where we'd go in with Raja. I loved Raja. It was one of the saddest things ever over this conference where you showed the video of mm. how Raja was yeah, his deterioration his, yeah. his end mm. yeah but I can remember going in with a, an adult female mm. where with the with another guy there um, and this adult female went mental and she just ran laps around her enclosure mm. and it was fast it was furious it was scary as hell I came out of there ran out of the stable doors mm. Just and and I was shocked. Yeah, not they're not a, a, a motivated Komodo dragon with a motivation you don't want and you're not in control of is a force to be reckoned with for yeah. sure. How do you feel um, the future is with hobby wise? Weird question, but do you think Komodo dragons will ever be out in a hobby? Do I think they will be? Do you think they should be? Well, so it's a difficult one really. Um, 
I mean, I'm, I've kept a few animals as a, as a hobbyist, if you want to call it that. Um, and it's partly where I grew my passion for and, and love of, of what we do. And you know, I've changed a lot in my career, as like everyone does. And I see things very differently and I have new goals and, and passions. But I, at the same time, I, I always in the past and every now and then now, I still love tinkering and being able to create an environment in, in a, an artificial environment that meets the needs of an animal. I get a thrill from that. It's cool. It's, it's technical. It's zoological. Uh, it's challenging and it's rewarding when you get it right and so that really applies to whether it's a pygmy blue tongue skink or a giant komodo dragon really and i mean ethically i don't really see that zoos are any more entitled to keep a komodo dragon than anyone else uh, it, it has to be legal and it has to be ethical and it has to be uh, appropriate but if someone's got the facilities and the resources to do komodo dragons properly privately it's not really any different from a zoo i, I guess um obviously if it's completely it's it's a bit more well, I don't know, selfish if you want to call it that because they're not there's, they're not out there for our visitors to enjoy and understand and be educated about and inspired by hopefully i mean and that's really why zoos exist well at least good zoos uh, the good zoos of the world and there are thousands of zoos thousands and thousands of things that you would label a zoo in the world because of course there's no dis- there's no distinction between uh, a really terrible two-bit roadside disaster in some country where they've got terrible animal welfare standards and whatever there's no real distinction between that and the greatest zoos of the world because they all have the same three-letter word labeling them and therefore the one of the greatest challenges for for modern good zoos is to is to uh, get the wider community the wider uh, you know the visitors zoo visitors of the world and the non-zoo visitors of the world to understand that not all zoos are equal and uh, don't just label us by the lo- lowest common denominator and so good zoos exist to give people what I like to think of as life-changing experiences um, more than just gawping at some weird animal through the glass or through the mesh or whatever but to, to be touched by an animal by its magnificence its splendor its behavior a close-up interaction with it whatever it might be but things that you not only remember in your head but you remember in your heart and we all know that we learn through emotion more than we learn through our brains and when you're emotionally engaged to something you are more likely to remember it and be affected by it and, and that's really what good zoos are trying to do we know that we're living in an inc- a world where people are increasingly disconnected uh, from nature and wild places and uh, zoos are an opportunity to try and address some of that and so uh, I mean, even in Auckland I work at Auckland Zoo as you mentioned and, and everyone thinks of New Zealand as this beautiful wild you know rolling magnificent Tolkien-esque landscape which much of it is but like any country much of it is also agriculture and suburbia and everything else and we know that the vast majority of the people living in and around Auckland, they might some of them might go for a walk at the weekend, but lots of the kids growing up in Auckland, they've never seen any of the New Zealand wildlife, they've never really been outside of the city, uh, they would never go and see any native wildlife that you can't see locally, out on the offshore islands or up in the, the hills, etc. And if we want those people to grow up caring about saving the, the wildlife of New Zealand, which we need them to if we're going to save the wildlife of New Zealand, then we've got to give them the opportunity to connect with it. So we can do that through zoos, and I think that's the that's the better justification for keeping Komodo dragons or any other animal. But again, there are in, for any species once the animal's husbandry is cracked and the, the the numbers of animals are being produced, where they end up living in a captive environment, I think is mostly about where they can be living at the best possible welfare. 
standards and best possible behavioural and physiological and, and, and the condition that meets all their needs. And if that's a private individual versus uh, a not very good facility in a, in, a, in, a, in a poor zoo, then I would be putting with the private individual. I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I think it's probably unlikely, however, because the, although there have been animals smuggled illegally and confiscated over the years, etc., and there probably are, I'm willing to bet, there are some Komodo dragons in captivity illegally and not quietly somewhere that people haven't, haven't publicised. But I think that, the, that I doubt there will ever be uh, the political will to allow private people to hold them. Obviously, they're Indonesian, and the Indonesian government has very strict rules and regulations, as they should, around how their wildlife is in inverted commas exploited whether it's for food or skins or pet trade or whatever and we all know lots of horror stories about how difficult that to is enforced and 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 how rife with with um uh, with corruption these sorts of these sorts of industries are but i think it's highly unlikely that there will ever really be a legal uh, mechanism for private holders to hold commodity i'd be very surprised can't you just be happy with your life modesty <coughs> No, well, <laughs> no. I'd love are, to. Well, I'd love to see them in captivity. Yeah. My, my worry would be that we wouldn't keep them in large enough enclosures. Like yeah. zoos have got minimal guidelines of yeah. enclosures and things like that. My worry would be in captivity. I think there's some amazing keepers out there who would keep them really well in a large enclosure. Mm. Um, but I think equally there'll be a lot that would probably keep them in a rack system. Yeah. So I said I've changed over the years and the... Uh, you know there are tens of millions of reptiles being kept in in in, in enclosures in in facilities around the world in zoos but also but predominantly in in the hobbyist trade as you called it that are in conditions that seem on the surface to largely meet their basic needs in terms of the fact that they stay alive they grow and they reproduce very efficiently is that enough and personally, I started like that, and it used to be enough, and I've had racks of pythons and stuff living in plastic boxes with a water bowl and a piece of newspaper. And, but as I've grown and my understanding of a, uh, an animal's mental state and its requirements, and what am I really doing to that animal by denying it all these things? And as we understand the, the, the mental capacity of, of animals, just because they're reptiles and they don't necessarily behave and think like us, we don't connect to them as easily. And no one would think twice about putting a... You'd never put a chimpanzee in a plastic box with a water bowl and a piece of newspaper because you know it would be bored to death and you know it would be bad for it because it's easy. We know that chimpanzees are like us, but the further we get away from us, the harder it is to make those associations. Ironically, the harder it is to anthropomorphize, which is something we try to avoid in many contexts. But in the same ways, we need to empathize with animals and understand that what we are do- we, are, we are their custodians, we're their responsible for them. They've got no control. And we put them in an environment that is depauperate in so many elements. Is that ethically really enough for that animal? And uh, increasingly, I'm, having, I'm struggling with it. And therefore, uh, well, if you if you come and visit us at Auckland Zoo, you'll see that our little brown skinks, which might be only a few centimetres long and uh, spend most of their time hidden, and uh, when they're not hidden, they're sta- sitting still, and they're still in large, heavily planted, complex enclosures that give them the full ability to express their whole range of behaviours. Uh, whether they're a terrestrial skink, well, who says they're a terrestrial skink? Let's give them something to climb on, and lo and behold, they'll climb. They're an arboreal skink? Oh, well, I still find them buried in the dirt sometimes let's give them that opportunity because it's easy to assume we know what they need and assume they're getting enough but i think we need to let the animals demonstrate what is enough 
and uh, and well, I think I touched on it in one of my, one of the talks I was giving earlier in the week that you know, I've in in the past I've seen things like. Uh, tree bowers I mean, the, the clues in the name right they're tree bowers and they've been kept in enclosures without adequate perching and therefore they don't have the musculature to climb properly and I've even seen deformed rib morphology as a result of sitting on half flat surfaces when they should be perching over branches I've seen people keeping sand bowers again another clue in the question in the name here right they bury in the sand in the substrate I've people seen people keep sand bowers in a, in, a, in a plastic box with a piece of newspaper and this thing is living under a piece of newspaper because it wants to be underground and its feces is smeared all across the substrate and wedged in between its scales and but the animal is on the superficially i say it's growing it's feeding and they go on to breed and there's this old-fashioned adage right you know oh if they're breeding we must they must be all right well that is the biggest misnomer right animals some animals breed because there's nothing better to do some animals breed because they fear they're going to die you know it's an evolutionary response to, 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 to imminent demises to reproduce just because an animal is breeding it means you certainly yes you're meeting some some minimum physiological nutritional um, and maybe seasonal climatic requirements but is it enough for that animal from a, from a from a welfare perspective and one of the things that's really going through the zoo community at the moment uh, and it's adopted through throughout the, the Australasian region the European region I think American region now is a new way of looking at animal welfare so uh, we're all familiar with the five freedoms uh, and the five freedoms were developed decades ago and they were really de- developed from the agricultural industry about cr- criticisms uh, very r- real and correct criticisms about how animals were kept in, in, in agriculture industry and so the freedoms is about avoiding negative experiences which is great. We want to avoid negative experiences. At the same time, it doesn't make any sense, right? A wild animal, or a captive animal for that matter, but a wild animal, how can it... You can't avoid being thirsty. So freedom from thirst, freedom from hunger, freedom from pain. Well, you can't, you can't, can't guarantee those things. And in fact, if you weren't hungry, you'd never eat, right? So, so the, free, the, the five freedoms have kind of had... A, people have taken a fresh look at this. And, uh, and there's now a new a new way of looking at animal welfare assessments and it's labeled the five domains and uh, the five domains is uh, the, the two differences between the, the old system and the new system really are is that a the, the new system is much more holistic and so uh, it looks at uh, the domains there are four physical domains that we assess an animal in so it's nutritional domain so what it's eating whether it's nutritionally appropriate how it's eating it whether it provides the right behavioral stimulation yeah. uh, go back to komodo dragons right we can give a komodo dragon 50 kilograms of uh, meat not feed it again for three months or we can give it 50 kilograms of of meat in kilogram cubes 50 times in 50 days right or which is behaviorally most appropriate well for komodo dragon maybe it's either but it's you see the the diet is not just what it consists of it's how you present it and and how the animal interacts with it and it meets its behavioral and physiological needs and then we look at the the environmental domain Uh, the environmental domain is the physical environment we put it in does it meet all its needs i touched on it just now we talked about climate and abiotic environment for ectotherms in particular but also that physical environment does it have shelter does it have shade can it get underground can it has it got cold has it got hot can it climb can it swim can it soak in a deep water can it swim underwater has it got an environment that matches what's in the envi- uh, in its wild environment the third domain is uh, is the the behavioral domain does the environment that we're keeping it in and by environment now i'm talking about everything the box it's in the enclosure it's in everything the the structures it's got 
the social environment that it's in with other animals of its own or different species, different sexes, does that whole environment provide for a full behavioural repertoire to be expressed? What behaviours are we seeing? What are we not seeing? So are, are its behavioural needs being met? And then the fourth domain is the health domain. Is that animal fit and healthy? Does it show any sort of disability or disease or impediments or, or, or reproductive disorders or whatever? And so by assessing its, its welfare in those four domains, and what we're looking for is not just avoiding the bad. The, re- the second difference is that we are really looking at ensuring where it's okay to have a bit of negative, well, negative experience sometimes. Like I said, it's important sometimes. But what we're really looking to assess is that the animals are also getting positive experiences in those domains, that we are actively promoting positive experiences for those animals across those four. So we know that they get to have sex and breed. That's a positive experience. We know that they get to dig up mealworms that we've buried in the rotten log and they get to physically dig and tear things apart and use their nose. And f- That's a positive experience rather than just giving the mealworms in a, in a bowl. Yeah. So we're looking for proactively provided positive experiences in all those domains. And when we look at the, 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 the average, if you like, or the overall impact of those negative sometimes, but ideally predominantly positive experiences across the four domains that gives us a very good indication of how that animal is experiencing the world in what we call it sort of its effective or its cognitive overall state as in how it is enjoying in inverted commas its life and so by looking at animals in a, in a much broader more holistic and positive focus uh, uh, welfare assessment process it just changes the way you think about animals blimey that was good <laughs> you wish you had an arsenal yeah, and there's the, obviously there's a continuum from the very, the very simple basic environment through to incredibly complicated ones, and everyone has a different, what's the word, I don't know, feel for opinion or whatever or comfort with what they are providing for their animals. But yeah, I encourage everybody, I guess, to think, uh, think deeply and holistically about, say, more than more than the basics. Uh, a, a truly well animal is not just free of disease and well-fed and reproducing a truly well animal in the same way as a truly well human has a lot of experiences in its life beyond eating and drinking and fornicating. I think one of the themes of the conference was um, the husbandry of animals in general. And I think a lot of us here, um, even people that are with beyond Steve and I, have thought we're gonna, we can't wait to go home and start doing things very differently yeah. in some of the ways we look after mm-hmm. our critters. So it's, it's been a great conference overall for a lot of reasons hasn't yeah. It? yeah I've really enjoyed the, the, the days it's been a nice mix of content and and background and, and I've, I've learned a huge amount uh, this last three days I've learned a lot about monster lizards that I didn't know and so I'm going away with lots of, of new thoughts and uh, and I mean I don't I don't have the pleasure of looking after Komodo dragons at Auckland Zoo um, but we do have a, a large robust and I believe very healthy and uh, happy in inverted commas group of lace monitors and um, but even you know our, our lace monitor exhibits about 80 square meters and it's a, a mixed exhibit with four animals in it and occasionally birds fly in and out of it and it's complicated and and three-dimensional and ever changing and they have a pretty cool life in there I think but I've already thought of ways that we can be um, doing more and doing better so yeah 
Mate, that was amazing. That was a lot. I've got to listen back on that many times. Yes, and too many times. Yeah. <clears throat> that was great. Thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate it. I know how busy you are and how much time this conference has taken from all of us. So, mm. I mean, we're in the middle of Australia, and we've been wanting to go out and see things, and we've had to go and do it in the dark. Um, yeah, we've been to yeah. some amazing places, and we've only seen them in the dark. Uh, but you're spending another week here to have a look around? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually on holiday anyway, so, um, so uh, I just... Because I don't keep Komodo dragons at Auckland Zoo, I just but I've got this history. I thought I'd come along and, and, and enjoy this conference and, and, and offer what I can and take the opportunity to come to an incredible place in the middle of Australia I've never been to. And uh, living in New Zealand, I'm a bit starved of snake action, and so uh, seeing some <laughs> seeing some wild snakes in Australia is is always a buzz for me. So uh, I'll be out for the next week uh, looking for extraordinary animals like uh, thorny devils and and uh, yeah and Brettles pythons and parentes hopefully and and just enjoying this amazing environment and and seeing some wildlife that uh, i've never seen before last night you found a mulga we did see a mulga yes that was pretty lovely and i think actually despite several visits to australia in the last few years i think that was the first time i'd seen a a, a, like a in inverted commas again but a a full-size lapid i've seen lots of the little little uh, (laughs) straw-sized obscure lapids in in new zealand but to see a a full-size brown snake uh, up close and personal was a real real treat Brilliant. Fantastic, mate. Thanks again. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening.